Super Talk Mississippi media production. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day celebrates the men and women who are making this such an amazing place to live, work, and play. For regular listeners, you know this, but uh, if you're not a regular listener, let me kind of set up this conversation we're about to have. You know that my family and I live on Back Bay. Um, my house actually is one of the one of only a very few homes that actually survived Hurricane Katrina. Most homes on the northern shore of Back Bay were were either completely destroyed or gutted completely. We had ten foot waves hitting my home during Katrina. We were here for this. We were here, unfortunately. And um, it was a it was a terrible moment in my family's life, and I've written extensively about it. But um, but we had uh, we had hurricane grade Anderson windows, we had commercial grade stucco, we had a metal roof, and uh, all of that withstood that. I, at one point during Hurricane Katrina, I literally described it as being in a glass bottom boat as we looked out and saw the the water sloshing on the windows and. That's a, it's a long, long story, but I won't go into it. But as the, as the publisher of the Sun-Herald at the time, I made the observation to my family, and then obviously this all came to be true, knowing that we lived over 20 feet above sea level on Biloxi's Back Bay, and to think of what we were experiencing and just, and just begin to understand where relative to uh, the 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 rest of the coastline and and what what uh, what where most of the iconic structures of coastal Mississippi were in terms of sea level I knew that the coast that we loved was getting wiped off the face of the earth and I wondered I worried how many people stayed in their homes I, in fact one of the things we were listening to was a local radio station at some at some points we had it WLOX on on a black and white screen but people were calling into the fire departments and begging for somebody to to, rec- to come rescue them they were you know had, by this point had gotten into their attics and uh, you know just they they were at a point where they couldn't they couldn't go rescue them and unfortunately too many people died in Katrina that's just the reality so as a publisher of the Sun Herald I kind of went on a mission I wanted the I was always kind of an amateur meteorologist because I spent a lot of time fishing offshore and I when you when you fish when you go 100 miles offshore and you do that for most of your life you you learn to know when you can go and when you can't go and you if you don't trust other people to make that decision for you you study it yourself and that's sort of what I did. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the weather sites prior to Hurricane Katrina studying tropical systems because I was always concerned about them. And I wanted to do the best job I could as a publisher to warn people and help save as many lives as possible. But it was after Hurricane Katrina, after my personal experience and after Coastal Mississippi's experience, that I went on even a, a more of a mission about uh, you know what? What will the adjustments be in the future of storm surge warnings, et cetera? We we had numerous editorial boards with the National Hurricane Center. We studied this issue in great detail, and uh, I often talked about <clears throat> the role that the hurricane hunters played in all of this. And if you if you are, are, are on my Facebook page, my personal Facebook page, or the Coastview Facebook page, you know that every opportunity I get, I post something about the hurricane hunters. Uh, in this case, the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron at Keesler as heroes. I think they're heroes. These, what they're doing 
to get information that can feed into models and feed into the National Hurricane Center and the National Weather Service's uh, forecasts, it's, it's, it's really putting their lives on the line. And they're heroes. And I live on Back Bay, by the way, and I live in the flight pattern for Keesley Air Force Base. So when there's a bad storm, even during Hurricane Katrina, they flew over my house. Those are heroes. And I'm so pleased now to have one of those heroes for the full show today, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Cross. He's a pilot. He will tell you that he's a, just a bus pilot. But when you hear his, his extensive uh, experience, including Hurricane Katrina, flying into the eye of Hurricane Katrina, you will know that he's a lot more than a bus pilot. But anyway, without any further ado, let me welcome my friend, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Cross, to coach you. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing good, Ricky. Thanks for having us on. And uh, I'm not a hero, man. Let me let me just tell you, there's it takes all 1,600 people in the 403rd wing at Keesler Air Force Base at the Air Force Reserve to pull this off. I mean, look, we get the glory because, you know, you guys like to talk to us on the radio and on TV and stuff. But it takes everybody from finance to the mechanics, you know, and, and all levels of maintenance personnel to pull this off because without each and every one of those citizen airmen at four third wing, there is no way we can make this happen. Uh, it is really a team effort. There's no question. I had, I had the, the honor of emceeing the salute to military uh, recently. And we had all the, all the commanders there from Keesler and of course CB base and the coast guard and national guard. I mean, it was, it was a very special moment but you you see Keesler in particular that incredible leadership. The 403rd is part of uh, a, a, an amalgamation of, of leadership that is taking place there at Keesler. We're lucky to have you guys, and it does doesn't it? I mean, it takes an, an incredible team. When you go by on a boat and you see over there on that on that tarmac those uh, those uh, Hurricane Hunter planes lined up. Boy, there's a lot that goes into that, isn't there? There is. There's a lot of iron on that ramp. We have 20 C-130s total. Uh, Ten belong to the 815th Airlift Squadron, the Flying Jennies, which they do an incredible job all around the world providing tactical support, tactical airlift. Uh, and then we have the 10 weather reconnaissance aircraft of the 53rd. And like I said, it it is a uh, it's a big event to launch those planes as much as we fly. You live right there, so you see us flying every day. And people ask us all the time, hey, you're a reservist. You only fly two days a month. I mean, that is not true. We have to fly almost every day of the week just to maintain proficiency. And an aircraft is like a boat. You know, if you don't use it, it's going to break. So we fly the heck out of them just to keep them going. So, and, you know, we need to do that because – Flying is a perishable skill that I tell people all the time. If you don't use it, you lose it. So you have to yeah. practice a lot. You're one of the. You're one of, and we're gonna we'll come into the Katrina experience in a second. But just so people have an understanding of this, you're one of the few pilots left who actually had an experience that actually is an act that is actively flying still with the with the squadron who has Katrina experience. That's true. It's myself and then I think Dan Jones, who retires in about a year. Uh, I think we're the only two pilots left that flew Katrina. You know, I was actually in the Caribbean, and, and I'm going to talk for a while on Katrina because I, I sure, can go, go sure. on this topic. But I was in the Caribbean down in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. That's our forward operating location for when storms come off of Africa. It gives us the ability to fly a lot further east and stay in the storm environment for about five hours and then come back to the home base. So we were out there and there was another system we were looking at and it fizzled. And they said, uh, the next day they're like, Sean, we need you to go to crew rest. 
you're going to hit this storm. It's coming off the tip of Florida, and you're going to fly, and we're pretty sure it's going to develop, and then you'll take it back to Keesler, take the aircraft back. So we did. We went into crew rest. We took off. I, I don't remember. It was late in the night. We flew. We ended up loitering right over the Florida Keys because as Katrina came in and hit around Miami, and then she turned south and went off the Florida Peninsula, she exited right over the Keys. So we were we were hanging out right there waiting on it to uh, exit uh, over the land. When it did, she rapidly exploded into a Category 1 hurricane. And we knew just off to the west of us was the fuel station for Katrina to explode into a very powerful hurricane because she need everything she needed to develop was right there in front of her. So we hung out, we flew, it, we loitered in, in that environment for five hours. That's generally about how long you're in the, the hurricane environment. And we had the Marine band up on the uh, radio because we were flying the brand new J model at that time. So we can listen to what the Coast Guard's saying and what the boats and all saying. And it was, as far as the flight goes at that point, it was pretty benign. But what we were hearing outside the airplane is the part that really gets you because you've got these people out there that did not heed the warnings, okay? They knew the storm was going to develop. They're on their boats. They're calling for the Coast Guard. They're, you know, they're fearing for their lives. They're asking for somebody to come out and rescue them. And the Coast Guard's basically telling them, you know, keep us advised of your situation. We cannot come out there until conditions improve, which was a long time. And when you're on a 40-foot sailboat, and it was, I'll never forget this. It was these two sailboats, and they were talking back and forth. It was a mother and father on one. And it was a son on the other sailboat. And they're they're talking back and forth. Well, at some point, the mass breaks. You know, the dad has broken ribs. He's he's coughing blood. And they're calling for rescue. But the, nobody's coming out there at that point. And people have to understand that when you have storms, whether it's a Category 1 to a 5, it doesn't matter. You're in it at that point, and you can't get out of it. So the, you can only risk so many lives. And you have to have the first responders in good shape to be able to come out there and take care of you afterwards. And I think that's the part that people just don't realize because we've got the world at our fingertips now on our phones and stuff. They think we're just going to press a button and somebody's going to come out there and rescue us. And it's not going to happen that quick. You've, you've got to listen to the civil authorities and take appropriate actions. If they tell you to evacuate, you need to move forward and probably listen to those guys. So let's do, let's do this. We're visiting with Lieutenant Colonel uh, Sean Cross. He is a pilot for the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron. He has flown in a bunch of storms. We're we're sort of zeroing in uh, in the first part of the conversation around Katrina, and uh, there's a lot to learn from Katrina and 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 many storms since. And, and frankly, more more recently, Hurricane Ian, which was a particular troublesome storm in terms of forecasting because of the unique atmospheric conditions that, that were there uh, and also the trajectory in which it, it, it struck uh, uh, Florida making making finding the center point for the National Hurricane Center a little bit of a challenge uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll hear more about that as time goes on. It may actually lead to some changes at the National Hurricane Center but when we come back we'll continue the conversation.
Survivor on demand and watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgulfcoast.com. Talking to the people that help make the coast such a unique place to live. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have Lieutenant Colonel Sean Cross, who's a pilot with the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron, Hurricane Hunters. And he's got a lot of experience. He's flown in a lot of storms. We're going to talk about what we've learned iteratively, you know, what, what, what the advancements in knowledge and capabilities and the refinements at the National Hurricane Center, especially since Hurricane Katrina that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, there needed to be some advancements, especially as it relates to her storm surge. Tying storm surge to category, it turns out not to be the best approach. That They need to do it based on the size of the storm, which obviously they've adjusted that now. When we went to break, we were talking about the the evolution of Hurricane Katrina, and he was telling us about uh, the time that he spent, the five hours initially he spent in Hurricane Katrina when it came off the coast of Florida. We actually may remember that when it, when it came off the coast, it actually went through the Everglades, and it didn't lose any steam. If anything, it was just continuing to sort of progress as a storm. We knew that when it got into her, it got into the Gulf of Mexico, that we didn't have a lot of uh, upper atmospheric conditions. It was going to knock the tops off. In fact, if anything, it was going to it was going to make it make it make it have every opportunity to become a Category Five. The heat content of the ocean, it all it all played together. It was literally um, a, an amazing setup to to create a dangerous storm, which obviously we all know. And by the way, I should also point out that Lieutenant Cross is from Louisiana, and now his parents live in the Florida Panhandle. And of course, he's here in coastal Mississippi, so he has not only a personal interest, but obviously a professional interest in any storm that's going to attack the, uh, the northern Gulf. Um, okay, so where we left off, you were actually, you said, you know, it's kind of nondescript, really, the initial stages of the five hours you spent in the storm, spent in the storm as Hurricane Katrina had not actually begun to really ramp up significantly yet, but that was not far behind. But you were listening to what was happening on the ground, and uh, you could see people who had not heeded some of the advice about what Katrina was going to do, and they were already, there were already problems almost initially from as in the formation of, of Katrina. So it comes, you know, one of the things, it, we'll talk more about this, but one of the things that was interesting about Katrina was it was supposed to make that curve a little sooner than it did, and it would have gone into the Florida panhandle somewhere. But just it, it, it continued to tick a little bit more southwest before it made that turn. A click or two on the compass at that stage of the game changes the trajectory of the storm dramatically, doesn't it? It does, and that's the old 60-to-1 rule, you know, that we use in aviation. I mean, you're 300 miles out, you know, one degree to the right shift change, that cone is wide. So if you're down here at the bottom of the cone as you tick one degree, you know, you were New Orleans here, next thing you know, you're Mobile, Alabama, 300 miles away. So that's what that cone is really for, to keep you advised of if you're in that cone to really pay attention because, Look, when it gets in the Gulf of Mexico, it's game on. I mean, somebody is going to get hit. These guys at the National Hurricane Center are the best in the world. I have no doubt about that. They put out some incredible forecasts. But you're still dealing with Mother Nature, okay? I mean, she put it all here, and when she's ready, she's going to take it all back or rearrange it however she wants to. And you have to be very respectful of that. I mean, we can have fantastic building codes, Miami Dade approved, all that stuff. But when she's ready, she's going to rearrange it. 
there's no there's no changing that. So, Sean, when you guys spent the initial five hours in it, and then you go back, you come. I assume you come back to Keesler at that stage of the game. And then, uh, I mean, things started to ramp up rapidly after that. I mean, obviously the forecast was that that was going to happen, but it was real time at that point, and it was getting more scary by the moment, at least for the northern Gulf. And as a pilot, what's going through your mind at that stage? Well, as a pilot, you know, on the air crew, while we're in the environment, we knew what was coming. So we're thinking about a lot of things. Hey, are we going to have to evacuate all the aircraft from Keesler because it's forecast to go up in that area and you know anywhere in the florida panhandle over to new orleans we're watching because we've only got a certain amount of time to move 10 aircraft and the necessary maintenance parts and people to continue flying this mission okay because you know our job is not done until the storm makes landfall the eye hits land we're done but we have to put ourselves in a position and i call it the traveling road show it's three aircraft and enough people to maintain this operation. It's about 65 people total with the crew and maintainers. So we can work from anywhere that we basically have a hotel room and an internet line. It really doesn't take a lot to pull it off as far as the planning. We can work anywhere from Key West, Homestead, all the way up the Florida Peninsula. We've worked out of Charleston, South Carolina. Homes, uh, we've worked out of Houston, Texas a lot of times. And for Katrina, that's where we worked out. It was Houston, Texas. So when we knew it was coming across the Gulf, and we were going to be affected by it. We moved all of the aircraft to Houston. The 815th, they went to another part of uh, Texas. They may have gone to Little Rock. I can't remember exactly. But we flew this operation and all subsequent flights out of Houston for probably about two weeks until we had to move to another base. Because what happened is, obviously, we were ground zero. Well, Marines came in. They took over Keesler Air Force Base. We were kicked out. We had to operate out of Dobbins Air Reserve Base in Atlanta, Georgia, all the way until November of that year. So, And that was quite a task because you're talking about reservists who live on the coast, whether they're full-time or part-time, lost. And this is, this is the part that gets me about the people I work with. They literally lost everything they own down here on the coast. There was a handful of people that lived in Porto Bay, which we all know in Diaberville. It was just decimated. It took a tremendous amount of water. Five of our families lost everything they owned, yet they showed up in Atlanta, Georgia, within days after the storm with everything they owned in a garbage bag and continued to work that season and fly this mission until the end of it, November of 2005. Well, remember, man, I mean, Hurricane crazy. Rita, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane oh, yeah. Wilma. I mean, my goodness, what we a year. We did not miss a fix of a storm that entire season. And that says a lot about the people in that wing. A lot of those people have moved on, but that dedication is still there and it runs strong. So as, as Hurricane Katrina continued to build up steam, and it was becoming this, you know, going through these multiple eyewall replacement cycles, and each time the, the expansion of the storm was what it was. Um, what was it like to fly into a storm that you knew was going to be a killer? Yeah, that, that's always tough because when you're in the eye and, and we're getting all this footage and everything and we're logging penetrations, we, we track how many times we penetrate. I mean, I'm over... 175 penetrations of major hurricanes throughout my career, which is, there's guys with over 300 um, that do it a lot. So look, somebody's paying a price. And look, here's the, here's the patch right here on my sleeve. It's 175. You know, we wear it. That's, that's the, the mark. Wow. But somebody pays a price for that patch. And it's, it's whether it's the people on the Gulf Coast or the people in Fort Myers dealing with, you know, the aftermath of this last hurricane that just went on shore. 
Um, I, I, I do think about it and I don't take it lightly because I, I, there's going to be loss of life. There is, whether it's category one or category five hurricane. And it's, and it's mostly from uh, drownings. That's what happens. Uh, it's the surge. You know, I, I, I talked to national hurricane center director last year, he was at the unit and, and he's like, look, you know what people aren't thinking about is the slower the movement, the larger the storm, the larger the surge. And he goes, and the surge is just not, he goes, the surge is just, that's what's killing people. They're not heeding the warnings. And I asked him directly, I'm like, we've been doing this a long time. What are we doing wrong? Uh, we're, obviously, they're not getting the message. How do we change that up? Do we have to put this in some kind of video that kids are going to watch on their phone? Or what do we do? Because I think people, I don't think I know, and this happened in Katrina, Ricky, This they had this false sense of security. I rode out Camille in the 60s. Okay, yeah. so my house withstood Camille. I know I'm going to be fine. Well, you know, Camille was here. Katrina was here. Well, where's the next one going to be? Yeah. Right? So you might not get that lucky next time. And that's that's what people really, really need to think about. Well, um, you know, it was said multiple times after Hurricane Katrina that Camille killed more people in 2005 than she killed in 1969. That is that's, a, that's such a smart observation. Yep. Uh, a lot of people, for example, and and for Hurricane Ian, same kind of scenario. They felt like, you know, they survived the last one, and the, the one that they remember the most is Charlie, and maybe uh, maybe one or two others that, that came through that area. But they'd never been hit with anything like this before. Um, when you think about it, 18 feet of storm surge in a place like like Fort Myers, where you know, like Tampa Bay, so much of it is like four feet above sea level. Think, just think about it. How far inland that's going to go? One of the interesting things about this this drive that I watched on Facebook Live for, for the guy Mike from Mike's Weather Page was that he got miles and miles and miles inland, way away from any any water, and suddenly there'd be a boat, you know, just out in the middle of yeah. nowhere. So it felt it felt a lot like Katrina in that way. The story of of Hurricane Ian, and we'll come back to this later, will be simply the number of people. One point five million people hit, and you know that were hit directly. Um, the number of homes, somewhere around four hundred thousand homes damaged. Man, Florida's really got their hands full. Let's come back. Let's come back to Hurricane Katrina. The at the height of its of its forming, after it became a Category Five. Thank God it started to lose some of its punch, not from a surge point of view, but from a wind point of view as it was going through these Iowa replacements. I want to hear you talk about what it was like to fly into that storm. And we're at the end of this segment. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with a hero, somebody I would refer to as a hero. He represents many like him, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Cross. Uh, he's a pilot with the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance uh, uh, Squadron. The Hurricane Hunters, the station at Keesler. We'll see you after this break. Subscribe for free to the Coast View Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have uh, someone I admire greatly. Uh, you actually may remember he, re- he during the during the break he reminded me that uh, when there was a show about the Hurricane Hunters on the Weather Channel, he was in that show quite a bit. But Lieutenant Colonel Sean Cross, he's a pilot with the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron at Keesler. He's a, he's a hurricane hunter. 
when we went to break, though, we're going to come back to Katrina because it's such a significant event for all of us. I'm I'm very curious about it, and I hope that you are as well. But as this thing gains speed, Sean, tell me about what it was like to fly into Hurricane Katrina, you know, the size of it. I mean, everything about that storm as a pilot had to have blown you away. Yeah, she was very large, and there's no doubt. She had an incredible uh, eye wall, and the stadium effect was just phenomenal. And that's just for the viewers out there, you know, stadium effect, that's what we call the inside of the storm. That's what it looks like. If you were on, and I, I do briefings like this all the time, all across the coast, and I've got a really cool PowerPoint slideshow that I put out there for everybody to see. And if you were standing on the 50-yard line with Drew Brees for the coin toss, you know, before the football game in the Superdome, and then you flipped the coin and you looked up and you looked at all of the seats and the people were gone, and it was clouds. That's the stadium effect. It's like being in the bottom of a bowl, and it's really incredible. Um, I can't remember how big the eye was across Katrina at her maximum size, but it, it was pretty large just based on the satellite views that I still have today and everything. Uh, but, you know, going through it and everything, every storm has its own unique personality. They're all different. We, we make four passes through the eye on a, on a normal flight, and, it, you know, pass one can be completely different than pass four. You never know. As a pilot, though, when you've got a very powerful storm, you have to be ready for that unexpected. It could be totally benign at 10,000 feet, and then again, you may hit that brick wall and think the plane's going to come apart on you. I mean, there are some, some, there's some violent weather. It's not the winds that's the big factor. Everybody thinks that what's it like to fly in these 150-mile-an-hour winds? That's nothing because when you're in an airliner, you're flying in a jet stream, you're experiencing that. It's the turbulence from the updrafts and downdrafts the microconvective vortexes and things like that, all of that activity that's happening in there, that's where it gets really nasty. Because just remember, it's it's a combination of a bunch of thunderstorms that have basically hooked arms and they're spinning in a circle counterclockwise. And, and they're the toughest kids on the block at that moment. They've really got their act together. And the, the C-130 handles it very well because we're flying at a slow airspeed which is 180 knots, about 200 miles per hour. It's the airspeed that the uh, engineers at Lockheed Martin have calculated to be, to cause a minimal amount of stress on the airframe. Fast enough to fly, but slow enough to cause that minimal amount of stress. The aircraft flexes really well. I can tell you, uh, in Aya Katrina or going through that eye wall, any other powerful storm, I've looked out and, and you can see those wings going up and down. I mean, they're flexing really good. Um, we have tremendous amount of power to get us out of that eye wall when we need it because we have these four massive turboprop engines. And when we need lift, it's there immediately. I have pushed the power up. We're generating our own lift, and that speed is there as soon as we need it. As an example, just real quick, in the Hurricane Ian, one of your crews experienced a downdraft that was very, very dramatic. I mean, but I mean, it's not unusual. You guys have felt those before, but it got a lot of national attention. Remind people what that was. So, yeah, uh, Major Kendall Dunn, he's a good friend of mine. He lives here in, in Long Beach on the Gulf Coast. He's been on the show before, actually. Yeah. Great guy. He, um, yeah, they caught they caught a really strong downdraft in Ian, um, and they, you know, lost, I think it was a little over 1,000 feet, um, which it's it's happened to crews before. It, it's not like you just blink and you're down, It is, but it is a solid push. And I, I can't take the thunder away from him. I don't. I wasn't in a plane that day. I'm actually glad I wasn't, but because uh, I've had my soul-searching moments in Hurricane Michael as it was making landfall uh, in 2018. But uh, they, it happens pretty quick, 
And usually when you get into these bad pockets, it might be only 10 or 15 seconds. But I'm telling you, when you're in the air at 10,000 feet in the eye of a hurricane, 10 or 15 seconds can be a long time when it's things are kind of coming apart on you. They they really got rocked. And I talked to the navigator afterwards and she showed me the video on her phone of what the radar presentation looked like. They had nowhere to go. They were boxed in. Um, it, anybody who would have been on the plane that day would have felt it. And, and look, he told me, he said, Sean, it, it was five hours the worst of my life. He goes, it was just, we just, everywhere we went, we were just getting beat up really bad. So it was one of those days and, you know, and it, you know, and Ian was interesting because people who don't know the term will explain, but it had a dirty eye, which meant it wasn't nice and cleaned out. It was a, it was a very turbulent storm in a lot of respects, wasn't it? Uh, that's true. And sometimes you can be in the eye of a storm. Katrina had a beautiful eye. Michael had an just incredibly gorgeous eye on the inside. But I've been in dead center of a storm in the eye, and it's all clouds. So they're, they're all different. It just depends on, you know, what it has in the atmosphere that it's dealing with, you know, is it growing? Is it dying? We drop buoys out in front of these storms to measure uh, the sea surface temperatures as well as the temperature at 50 meters deep because that's the fuel source out in front. As these storms are moving across a large body of open water, they're actually like a giant blender and they're churning that water up. The fuel source is ahead, so the scientists want to know, hey, what's the temperature down below? as it brings that cooler water up to the surface. Is this hurricane going to die or is it going to grow? So there's a tremendous amount of science that goes into this forecasting. And they're doing a really good job with it. Hey, so, Sean, when you let's go back to Katrina, though. Let's say, so <clears throat> when people think about the eye, you know, they think about this round thing. You talked about the stadium effect of the well-organized storms. You're not just penetrating directly in. What's your trajectory into the eye relative to, this, to where the wind is? Okay, so to break this down, the hurricane has been in counterclockwise, all right? And we enter the storm at 10,000 feet, okay? So a lot of people, I get this question all the time. Hey, what's it like to fly over the top of that storm and drop in? I'm like, no, no, that's not how this works. Our job is to penetrate at 10,000 feet pressure altitude. Now, there's a pressure gradient that runs through the storm, and they want us at 10,000 foot pressure. But as you're, you know, being in Katrina and everybody else who's experienced, as the storm's coming on land, you can feel the pressure dropping, right? It's like descending in an elevator or in an airline. You can feel the difference in your ears. Well, in order for us to hold 10,000 foot pressure gradient, that's changing through the storm. So as you go through and you're going through the eye, you actually drop down. And then you fix the center of the storm, and then you climb back up to hold 10,000 feet pressure. So our instruments say 10,000 feet at all times, but the radar altimeter, which is sending a signal to the surface and back, it's going to indicate lower. So 10,000 foot pressure, but we're actually, we might be at 9,000 feet above the ground. So that kind of explains that gradient as it drops off and goes through the storm. It's really fascinating to see that the first time and, and how it affects the aircraft. And when you fly that profile that the scientists require us to do to get that forecast so, out there. So, Sean, when you penetrate the eye, you're having to really keep your hand on, I'm assuming, on um, you're, you're slowing it down, you're speeding it up. You're, it's really an intuitive piloting experience when you're, when you're really penetrating. When you come out in the eye, do you have to pull it back a little bit and say, you know, did you, is there a breath of fresh air? Or what, what's that What's that post-penetration moment feel like? So as we're, as we're flying through the eye, we've got the radar up. And obviously we can see, we know how 
based on our speed, which is 180 knots, you know, right? So we can look at all of that and we know we're going to be out of this in about 30 more seconds. Okay. So we're, we're looking at it. And if it's during the daytime, it's starting to get light out in front of the aircraft. You're dark to the clouds get lighter to all of a sudden you break out into the center. Uh, now that you asked about the speed and stuff, the autopilot and the auto throttles are doing the majority of the work here. We're monitoring and guarding that. It's not that we can't fly it, but when you're on a 12 and a half hour mission, it's very fatiguing. So the computers are doing a much better job. However, there are moments where the autopilot and auto throttles cannot keep up with the turbulence. The servos are just not strong enough to overcome that force uh, that Mother Nature is putting on the aircraft. So at that point, we have to hand fly it. Um, and I've had to do that quite a few times. We had to do that in Michael. I can't remember if we did it in Katrina, so to speak, but back in 2018, and, and I'll just drift off from Katrina for a second, that autopilot disconnected rapidly. And we were in the eye wall of Michael as it was making landfall. We had 150 mile an hour winds from our left wing. Well, when the autopilot kicked off, the aircraft violently rolled to the right because you've got 150 mile an hour winds hitting the left wing. So it just lifted the plane and rolled it to the right like this. At the same time, the aircraft weather vaned like it would on the top of a barn. It's going to point into the relative wind. The aircraft rolled to the right and pointed into the wind and it dropped the nose 20 degrees. At that point, we lost 20 knots of airspeed. We're approaching an impending stall because basically Hurricane Michael had us and he was putting us where he wanted us to be. That all happened in about 10 seconds. It was extremely violent, pretty much like what they just went through in Ian. And uh, it'll get your attention really quick. We had to hand fly. We righted the aircraft. You know, and at that point, as a pilot, I was the aircraft commander on board. And uh, I can tell you there was a lot going on. And I can expand on that a lot more in the next segment because I know we're getting close to it. And I will tell you exactly what I was doing as the aircraft commander in a violent eyewall. Well, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do that, and then we'll talk about how you guys work so closely at the National Hurricane Center to save lives. We'll, we'll love you back with Lieutenant Colonel Sean Cross, a hurricane hunter out of Keesler. We'll see you after this break. Live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say Alexa. Open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. We're having a conversation that I know most Coast View listeners and viewers enjoy and not just enjoy it's about learning and connecting with those who are helping so hard to, to working so hard to uh, help save lives and lieutenant colonel sean cross who's with the 53rd weather reconnaissance squadron at keesley he's a hurricane hunter what a great history he has and i was telling them during the break we're going to come back together again maybe even before the season's over with and just continue this conversation because there's so much to talk about and at the end of the day it comes back to this saving lives so we'll finish the part about hurricane michael it sounds like that's not a plane i would have wanted to be in and then we'll, i want to close the show with reminding people about the great relationship and partnership you have with the national hurricane center and the national uh, weather service so um so what did you do tell me about when this plane 
lunges sideways and then and then does a weather vane effect. How did you gain control of that airplane? Well, so on breaking one, got a model real quick. Yeah, so it kind of happened like this. So here's the aircraft. So we caught the wind from this side at 150 miles an hour. Right, the aircraft violently rolled like this, but in the same time, it also weather vaned into the eye walls. So we kind of all in one shot. We rolled like this. Maybe not that drastic down, but it was about 45 degrees nose low, which is pretty intense, right? So here yeah. we are, and then we're actually hung on the eye wall at this point. So the in interior of the eye wall was right here. I'm in the left seat right here as the aircraft commander, and I always tell people, hey, I'm kind of like the mayor on board. I'm kind of just watching, making sure everything's going off of the timing. My left eye, I'm looking out the left window at the eye wall of Michael. My right eye, I'm watching the co-pilot to make sure he's flying. My right ear, I'm listening to the navigator because they're telling us we got to turn right, we got to turn right. And then my left ear, I'm hearing everybody else on a plane freaking out. And I'm like, I finally turned to the navigator. I got it. I know we need to turn right. Trust me, I can see what's happening here. But that's that whole part of that crew synergy. We're all working together to keep this expensive taxpayer asset flying and and get out of the really rough stuff. It was a 10, 15 second period, but I'm gonna tell you right now, it's one that I I hope I don't experience. Throughout the rest of my career, I got I got about five years left, and uh, I don't really want to go through another. Well, John, is there something is there something you learned from that experience? A way to avoid that? It seems like a, it could happen at any moment based on the, whatever the tra trajectory is you're coming in at. But uh, is there a way to maybe avoid that? You know, it's it's really tough to say how to avoid it. I mean, we do a really good job of reading the radar and and avoiding hook echoes and things like that, which are potential tornadic activity. You don't want to get anywhere around that stuff, but sometimes we just don't have a choice. We've we've got to punch through it. And that's what happened to those guys in Ian. They had no choice. They were in the environment and whether to turn left or right to try and avoid something that was really bad, it didn't make a, a difference at that point. Michael was such an interesting storm. I'll remind people that it wasn't supposed to do what it did. It ramped up to this incredible storm. With a, with, it's found a way of sort of uh, controlling the environment it was in, and it overcame some huge wind shear factors that should have not enabled this to happen. But it just tells you, you know, every storm is going to be different. Every storm may find a pocket, in this case, Michael did, a pocket where it could rapidly intensify. And it seems like we learn something new from every storm, don't we, Sean? We do. It's it's a learning process. You know, the more data we extract from the insides of these storms, the more we fly, the more hours we get in them. It's just it's law of averages. The more information you get, the tighter the forecasting model is going to be. And they're coming up with newer technology all the time and different things to look at us. They're asking us to, you know, hey, fly over here. We want to look at this. And we're like, why? That's that's not what we normally do. They said, yeah, but there's something we really want to take a look at. So I, it's we're getting better. Is it perfect? No, I, we're never going to be 100% perfect because you're dealing with Mother Nature. But those guys in Miami are doing a phenomenal job. They really are. We've got a great partnership with them. Well, the National Hurricane Center is, as we discussed, the best at this. Um, they're better than any model because they're bringing all these models together. They have a lot of experience, a lot of intuition. Hurricane Ian was an example of, just like with Hurricane Charlie, if it makes that tick to the right a little bit sooner, and some of the models were sort of slowly shifting within a 24-hour period, that it could take that shift. Just, to, you know, again, because of the trajectory and how it was coming into the coast, uh, just a click 
could change where it hits dramatically. And that's essentially what happened. I mean, it went from Tampa Bay to the Fort Myers area. And it, when you have the window for issuing one warnings begins to narrow very significantly, and you have a community in the case of Fort Myers that had never experienced a high storm surge like they experienced, it's almost like the, the recipe for disaster. And you'll see, just like after Katrina, uh, we learned so much, there'll be more learning that's happening. But the relationship, the data you guys are providing, the information that you're providing, the, the, the work that the National Hurricane Center has done to sharpen its ability to do this, man, it's, it's, at the end of the day, it's all about saving lives, isn't it? It is absolutely. It's all about saving lives. And that's why we do these interviews and I go out and do a lot of public speaking and, and you know, preach about the mission. It's education and outreach. The more we can get the information out there, the better off we're going to be. And, and look, my heart goes out to everybody that's in the path of Ian all the way back to Katrina. I, I tell people every time I brief this and I do it a lot, I said, don't lock Katrina in a box and put her away. Talk to your kids about it. Tell the stories for years to come because you may not be around when they experience the next one. So the more you acknowledge you can pass on now, the safer they're going to be in the future. No doubt about it. Listen, it's been a pleasure, Sean. You have been terrific. Uh, we'll have you back. We'll continue the conversation. The goal is to sort is to educate people, but also help them have the information they need to to uh, save their own lives and those of their friends and family. We will get better at this as we go forward. Anyway, God bless you, my friend. One of my heroes on the coast, Sean uh, Cross, the lieutenant colonel from the Hurricane Hunters at Keystar. Have a great day, and we'll see you tomorrow. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. Follow Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.